Signs of the Southland for the 17th of July, 2023. Mr. Grant, Mr. Purdy, we have a lovely interview with Leighton Truder uh, after the break. But first, let's talk about Chris Eubanks at Wimbledon. Mr. Purdy, mm-hmm. how did he do? Well, last week we had mentioned how we beat uh, Puss, uh in the, what was that, round of 16 to make the quarterfinals. Um, and he played, they played last Wednesday, so that was eight, uh, five days ago. Uh, and he was playing Daniil Medvedev, the next best guy in line before Djokovic and Alcaraz. And that went to five sets. Um, and right at the fifth set started when he kind of started tailing off. Um, he had a crap ton of winners, though. I think that he has somewhere in the highest number of winners, if not the most winners, um, through that round in a Wimbledon history so far. Um, he was serving out of his mind, even against Medvedev as well. Sadly, I was on the way to Nashville and missed the party that Georgia Tech, like, the Institute threw at COTA to watch it, that match. It was a 10 a.m. match, and so, you know, everyone's already on campus working. That's there in the summer. Uh, and so uh, they used the big screen there. If you haven't seen there's a, if you haven't seen Ben Dakota, they have a little courtyard, and they have this, like, super, super wide screen. Um, and so a lot, apparently from a friend of mine who was there, they, they said near the end of the match there was, like, 400 people there. Uh, so it was a... Serious crowd for a Wimbledon wa- as big of a Wimbledon watch party as Atlanta's probably had in a long time. <laughs> of the you win specific, that on a technicality, James. A very, very specific thing there, but I mean, it was I think it was really cool just to see that that was happening and Eubanks was able to get a lot of home support based on the articles I read and just how his response was. He was I mean, deservedly shocked at the amount of response coming, but like he was he was saying this is the best time, best tennis he's ever played. So. Um, and everyone does have the chance to see him this coming weekend. He is playing the Atlanta Open, uh, which oh, happens. Shoot. Yes, he is playing Atlanta. He is not playing the Newport tournament, which is on grass. So he's going to play hard court this weekend instead. Um, I will not be here, so I will not be watching this, sadly. Uh, but if you're in town, definitely go to the Atlanta Open because there's already a lot of cool players that come usually. So if you, have this, if you haven't been to the Atlanta Open, it's a fun little tournament. Um, yes, it gets a little hot because there's no roofs and it's at Atlantic Station. But if you want to see some pro tennis for not that expensive, that's your opportunity. Your only requirement is to root against John Isner. But just to go circle back onto Chris Eubanks for a bit, a couple of notes that came out of the tournament. I, I wanted I wanted to mention that he had Medvedev on the ropes. Like they went to that fourth set tie. I think it was a fourth set tie break, right? No, was it was it, was it, was it, was it the, Yeah, it was a fourth set tie break. He had Medvedev on the ropes going, and it took a Herculean effort for Medvedev just to send it to a tiebreak in that set because yes, Eubanks was yes. two up and serving well, and then Medvedev started to see the serve and position himself properly. Move. I think the announcers made a really good point about Medvedev moving in closer so he could get more power on the on the returns and more direction. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, and it was just sort of a like a Peric victory from there or moral victory. Moral victory is the word yeah. I want to use. He, he won um, that fourth set tie break seven, four, but then yeah, six, one in the fifth set. So it was well, after that tie break that, that was, that was the emotional. Yeah, that was it. it. Seemed. Yeah. Um, it's like, it's one of those very, just very emotional sets and it's just hard yeah. to, hard to come back from the other, the other note is he's up to, I think I saw 31st in the IT, ITP rankings. ATP, ATP, one of the ranking systems. I'm going to get the college and the uh, professional ones confused because we OTP, talk about the... ITP, ATL, <laughs> yeah, 
Just, just Atlanta just born and bred. Out there. You'll get there eventually. Exactly. <laughs> but he is up to he is up to 31st in the men's professional tennis rankings, whatever they are called. So uh ATP, there is the ATP rankings. So there is some so he's like that's just over two tournaments, right? He won in Mallorca and then he went to the quarterfinals at Wimbledon. Yep. And he's yep. now well into the top one hundred. So I think Jake, you were saying he gets uh Wimbledon tickets for life for free. Or something like that. Top eight. You always talking yeah, to you about top this. Eight. Yeah. I think it's for life. Yeah, that's a big deal on uh, Twitter. I don't know why I'm still on that app, but that's how I remember that Clayton was <laughs> writing a new book. So you know, I guess it's not we'll, all bad. We'll get there. Couple more news items. Don't don't spoil my segues, my guy. Uh, let's that's my job. Those. That's my job. It's been a long time of us doing that. Come on. Woof. Uh, Let's head over to the basketball court real quick. Ibrahim Asako of Guinea has signed a grant in aid to come to Georgia Tech. He was a 6'6", or he is a 6'6", small forward uh, from Markham, Ontario. He's one of the best three prospects from Canada. So another seems like a big prospect for Damon Stoudemire as he begins to put together his inaugural season roster. Jack, do you have any more on this one? The... The uh, recap that Tech posted that Stoudemire said that he he liked his def- his defensive ability, which certainly is a would be a welcome sight for us uh, after last year in some of those games. Um, and he likes his scoring ability, uh, which is good. So I mean, if if he's six six small four, that's 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 the kind of frame that you wanted. To, you wanted that guy to be versatile. He's going to be that specific frame and play that position anyways. Um, and definitely play defense if you're going to be on the forward spot. So, uh, yeah, we'll see. See how it goes. I haven't looked too much into his stuff and whatnot but yeah he's from guinea and then was playing uh high school ball at a prep school in canada over the last year or so um someone made the, someone in our writers or made a comment that stoudemire was a pretty small player in his day compared to you know the normal nba but now he's just recruiting massively tall dudes yeah yeah <laughs> which is just <laughs> it's a great great bit of irony but i think one of the things that we've commented on historically about georgia tech but basketball is that they lack size they lack definitive size right so um we will I be think... dunking the basketball this year that is a thing Which... we didn't really do this past year was dunks when we had moses hey. right there was a, <laughs> just dunk after dunk every game this is right no and jordan dunk. usher too had yeah. uh, a lot of dunking ability but yeah that definitely not something that's been in georgia tech's game for a while now uh, our final news item carson kim from yorba linda california has committed to Georgia Tech Golf, according to the Junior Golf Scoreboard. He is the number three ranked junior golfer right now. He was originally committed to USC, and then USC made a coaching change. So now he's here. Um, the other, the last note that uh, we have on this, because obviously it's golf, so not a lot of information. Uh, he won all of his junior President's Cup matches. Uh, I will be the first to admit. I don't really know what the President's Cup is or what the Junior President's Cup is, but President's I assume Jack Cup knows. Is the, uh, yes, that is the it's still how the Ryder Cup is U.S. versus Europe. Uh, the President's Cup is U.S. versus everything that isn't Europe. Hmm. They could have found so, a different name for that, I feel like. Uh, well, thank you. So you usually get a lot of Aussies and some South Africans and Koreans. That's generally how those rosters get made up. And some Japanese players. Makes sense. I think that's about it for news. Mr. Grant, would you like to introduce our guest? Absolutely. Uh, those who have been listening to our podcast for 
Well, I was going to say we didn't interview that you interview you that long ago, Clayton. But I guess it's been at least like two years because Jack definitely was not around, uh, and it's it's been at least a minute. But for those that don't remember, uh, we have today Mr. Clayton Truder, uh, he of the dare I say anthology of Atlanta professional sports Loserville, back yet again to to talk about another book. Clayton, how you doing today? Doing great. Thanks for the kind words about Loserville, and I appreciate you guys all looking into it. Um, yeah, I'm glad it's perceived that way now. That's 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 <laughs> awfully nice. I mean, top to bottom, there's really nothing else that does quite what it does. So I, I got to give you got to give you props for that, and, and I want to thank you for coming back on. Um, but new book. It's not Atlanta, but what's the hook? It's not Atlanta. It's a Boston book. I lived in Boston for many years, and that's where I came up with the idea for it. It's called Boston Ball. Rick Pitino, Jim Calhoun, Gary Williams, and the Forgotten Cradle of Basketball Coaches. When I was living in Boston, I realized that kind of low-key, three different Boston basketball programs all at the same time during the 1980s had coaches that ended up in the Basketball Hall of Fame. Jim Calhoun coached at Northeastern, which everyone called Northwestern at the time. Um, you had Rick Pitino coaching at BU and you had Gary Williams coaching at BC. They all went elsewhere to bigger programs and had fantastic careers. So I got the idea to write a book that talked about all three of these guys, their emergence as coaches happening simultaneously, how they developed, developed their approach to recruiting, their, their strategies on the court, and how it in many ways differed greatly from what was happening in college basketball at the time. These are all guys that adopted very much a run-and-gun, pressing, trapping kind of attack. College basketball by the end of the 1970s had become very big man-dominated. The problem was these guys were all coaching in fairly small programs and couldn't lure Bob Lanier or Artis Gilmore or Bill Walton to come there. So they built around small guys and played very aggressive styles of basketball, which had not been seen for many years. That, in many ways, had been the style of basketball in the northeast quarter of the country, dating back to the 30s. But as the big man emerged as the centerpiece of college basketball, that style dissipated a bit over time. They helped bring it back, and in many ways, this is an origin story for modern college basketball, because all of those coaches adopted this style um, in their jobs at UConn with Calhoun, in for Patino in several places, and with Gary Williams at Maryland. They all played very aggressive styles of basketball, uh, and it, it led them to six national titles, 14 Final Fours and over 2,500 wins among the three of them. Nice. Uh, that I mean, that sounds like a great synopsis of the book. It's not out till November, correct me there? November 1st. You can pre-order it now, and I can provide you information on getting a very nice 40% off discount much later in, in this process. I was, I was going to say, we'll, we'll, we'll do that at the end, but um, and, and we appreciate the synopsis in advance because that's how you know we turn listeners into buyers but um how'd you go from atlanta and, and all the time you spent on loserville if i if i recall that was your ma master's thesis PhD it was my thesis? doctoral dissertation it took a decade okay. to do that Ooh. okay yeah so how'd you go from writing uh, you know a, a real real thick book um to you know uh, to to the cradle of coaches and and writing a book about boston basketball because it, it feels like it's been a quick turnaround here it's all because of covid i turned in the final version of uh loserville on June 1st, 2020. And there was still a lot of being at home at that point. And I was, and I got the idea that I wanted to write another book. And if I didn't start immediately, I would never do it. So I pitched my agent on this idea and he got me a book contract and I got to work. 
Um, I a lot of the interviews wow. were thanks to LinkedIn, basically, because wow. these guys are all college graduates. A lot of them are professionals. So I didn't have a LinkedIn account. I signed up for LinkedIn and I started looking for people. And I ended up doing nearly 100 interviews for the book with former players wow. at the three schools, coaches, staff members, media people. I also made a big point of talking to opponents of these schools, too. I talked to somebody who had played against all of BC's Big East opponents at the time. I talked to somebody who played against all of Northeastern and, and BU's opponents in what was called the ECAC at that time. Evolved, okay. ECAC North evolved into America East. So I wanted to get a more get, get a more global perspective on these teams as opposed to simply them telling me about themselves. So I was able to talk to a lot of people very quickly and uh, the book's been done for like a year. It's uh, just waiting wow. for the publication day to happen. That's exciting. Um, I, I'll uh, I'll save my related question for the very end because I feel like it segues us out um, a little bit better. Um, I take it you weren't working on them at the same time, but it, it sounds like you clearly must have you know, taking some aspects of what you learned writing Loserville, probably more about, you know, writing a book than, you know, than, than about like Atlanta sports, taking it over to Boston. But mm -hmm. what are some of those things that you were able to like, say like, Oh, the second time around, I'll know to do this or, you know, something. I, like I think just structurally having a sense of how to, how to build a story was part of it that there were, that Loserville was a lot of kind of discrete parts. Some of it was topical. Some of it was chronological figuring out how to tell the story. I think I learned a lot from Loserville. Also the research process, also being used to interviewing people, um, yeah. particularly a lot of older people. I mean, when I, when I did Loserville, most of the people I talked with were in their seventies and eighties. By comparison, these were youngsters. These were people in their sixties. I was talking to generally. So I had a lot of experience just having very long form discussions with people as a result of that. Um, I'd say I also just learned the day-to-day -day diligence of doing a book, having a goal every day for what you needed to accomplish, whether it was during the writing period. I tried to write 1,500 words a day. Um, I, it, if it was in terms of the research, I, I, I found ways to create benchmarks. Just never, never, never treating a day as anything more than just a work day for the book, I think, helped me get it done fairly quickly. If you can write 1,000 or 1,500 words a day, in two and a half months, you have yourself a book. So that was kind of my my approach. And are you still, you're, you're teaching it, right? You're yeah, I, I teach, still? Yeah, I, I teach, yeah, I teach part-time at a school called Norwich university. It's a small nice. military college in Vermont. And I also freelance and write for a wide range of venues. A lot of them are city and regional magazines. Some of them are university magazines. Some of them are more national publications. Uh, and I pitch stories that are typically sports or popular culture related in one form or another. So when when you're pitching those stories, thinking about books, things like that, are those usually like college publications? Because you you wrote about a lot of professional sports. Granted, we did have the tech angle uh, and you know Pistol Pete and um, the obvious flow from your uh, NCAA football and basketball up to up to the pros in in Loserville. Uh, what made you decide, hey, I'm I'm going to write a whole book about college sports? I, I think just getting the idea for the subject. I mean, I'm very broadly a sports fan. Um, I'm probably a biggest football fan of anything, basketball probably second, but I, I'm willing to write about any sport, basically just, I mean, as long as I can get paid to do it, I'm willing to write about pretty much any sport-related topic. So I, um, in terms of this, I had a bit, like, I think my thing with books is I tend to talk about there's something that ends up having this range of unintended consequences, a big idea that builds off 
something seemingly small. I think that's what Loserville kind of does, that Atlanta had this vision that ended up shaping what's happening in the whole country. I think in some ways this is the same thing. You have these three ambitious young coaches who have a vision for building careers for themselves and end up in many ways playing a big role in the invention of March Madness. So I, I think that that taking something small and building it into something big tends to be the kind of story I, I like telling. Let me butt in here. Did you yeah. have you noticed this anywhere else outside of your two areas of focus there between Loserville and the basketball? I'm sorry. Can you repeat that? Yeah. Have you noticed that same trend of a smaller group trying to do that or being the source of a big, big expansion or change in this in a big in a sport? Um, yeah, I, th- I think that's how changes happen with most things. There's a handful of committed people that find a a different way to do something, and they end up uh, reshaping things, whether it's their intent or not. So I, I think, yeah, it happened with sports. I think I think it, cer- it certainly happens in, in politics and society, too. Yeah. I mean, I think that's kind of like Malcolm Gladwell, kind of his whole whole gimmick as a writer is taking these seemingly small things that have these broader in- impacts. Right. He's not a guy I've read a ton of, but I think in some ways I do probably do some somewhat similar stuff uh, to what he's doing in terms of at least structurally or narrative-wise. I think to build off of that, too, it's uh, and to bring it over to baseball it's, that's what you saw with moneyball right the oakland athletics mm-hmm. found a way to produce wins without having to spend money and now everyone wants to do the exact same thing and they were just doing it because they wanted to be cheap now it's a it's an optimization game right not just if being you, cheap but how can you spend 100%. money most optimally absolutely yeah. and if you're pitching a book about sports you want to tell them it's going to be the next money ball. Note that the word ball is in my title of this book. So I I was very much thinking along those lines that you you try to deal with an unfair game and find an advantage in it. So Loserville was going to be the next money ball. This one is too. I presume any book I ever write is going to be pitched as the next money ball. So I, I think you're that's an incredibly astute point in terms of what I, what's happening. And I think as a marketing thing, it's also just the way to go because there really aren't that many sports books that sell that well anymore. There used to be a much bigger market place for it so you have to find a way to say that you're the next big thing and money balls certainly was a big thing yeah uh i i think that definitely definitely makes sense and honestly i've seen a lot of discourse with that being the the 20th anniversary of Moneyball, about how it's kind of changed not only uh sports but also writing about sports and writing about uh, writing about the culture at large so very interesting to hear um to that perspective as well um i do want to talk a little bit about boston uh none of the three of us are Boston boys. Uh, at, I'm from Chicago. Mm-hmm. Akshay and Jack are Atlanta and dot 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 elsewhere. Um, what's what's the hook on on Boston? Not just in general, but what makes it forgotten? Because that's kind of what drew me to the title, it being the forgotten cradle of coaches. Well, I th- I think. The, the the main aspect of this is that Boston is basically a pro sports town. People will call it America's okay. college town. It's not a college town in a conventional sense of the term. It's not like Madison, Wisconsin, where there's one college that dominates the landscape. You have a lot of different college or Ann Arbor, Michigan or Berkeley, California. You have a lot of different colleges in the city, whether it's Harvard or MIT or Tufts or BC or BU or Northeastern or uh, Brandeis. You have a lot of very good schools in the city, but there's no one of them that is the dominant sports feature in the city. It is pro sports, which dominates at their best. 
college athletics are the fifth most popular thing in town. And there's rarely one team that really captures the imagination that way. BC football for a little bit in the 1980s, BC basketball when they had that run through the Elite Eight in the 90s. But generally speaking, it is the alumni of those particular schools who support those teams. I mean, college hockey is a very big deal in Boston, but even in Boston, it's still kind of a niche thing. Um, so I, I think it's it's a relative it's a it's a lot of schools with relatively small fan bases fighting for a for table scraps in a market that's very much dominated by by four pro sports teams. That's that's interesting because as you know, as a Chicago native myself, I mean, I grew up in a town with five big sports teams, five pro leagues, mm-hmm. but I I wouldn't say that it was quite fractured the same way and more that it was just like all these big kind of like atlanta all these big 10 grads moving and you know the probably the biggest wisconsin town in, in america isn't madison it's it's chicago or, or michigan well, State and the biggest or, notre dame or town Illinois, too, Iowa. Yeah. yeah yeah um whereas you know i mean i'm a son of a depaul grad and grandson of a loyola grad and i swam at uic my whole life but i mean i wasn't I wasn't hearing anything about about any of those schools, so definitely definitely an interesting perspective, and and I'd say probably a relatable one, even again with Atlanta, with not just uh, mm-hmm. ACC schools and and UGA, but the rest of the SEC is as well, like you know from your Floridas to your Alabama schools, and and and, and that's that's a good point that you bring up too, and it's something that we brought up when we wrote our whole magnum opus on the on Georgia Tech's context, right? It's Georgia Tech is much like those small or, or those smaller Boston area colleges in that it's on the sports totem pole. There's the pro sports teams. There's the SEC, which might as well be one A and one B mm-hmm. to a certain extent, or one and then two, right? Yeah. For a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And then Georgia Tech and some of the other more minor college alumni fit in that third tier. So it's a, it's you can sort of see the parallels here between between those two situations as much as I uh, hate to personally draw parallels between Boston and Atlanta, uh, given Atlanta's history with Boston <laughs> sports teams. But, uh, yeah, like you can see the parallels between these two stories here and that it's super hard just to break through from that lower tier. And very much. But, so. but like you say, it's like these guys did it right. They brought something new to the table. Yeah, they they did. They were able to get a little more attention than they would have normally. In many ways, it's a story about the consequences of them all having the opportunity to build a program, build a culture. Because, I mean, people who saw UConn in the the 90s become a dominant program, they would compare these guys who played at UConn directly to guys that had played for Northeastern during the 1980s. Oh, this is the new version of this guy. This is the new version of that guy. I mean, very quietly, Northeastern went to the tournament six out of seven years with Calhoun. They scored three consecutive first round upsets in a row. I mean, they built a very fearsome program that nobody wanted to play. They were one of the first Cinderella's in the tournament as as it expanded from being a 24 team field to 32 to 48 to 54 to finally the 64 team bracket, which still makes up the core of the NCAA tournament. I mean, they were the team from the small conference nobody wanted to play. They were physical. They were fast. They crashed the boards, uh, and um, people got overlooked them year after year. I mean, on their locker, on their locker room, it would say Northwestern on the outside because they thought that was the name of the school. Um, one time, Calhoun was coaching Northeastern, and they had almost knocked off Villanova, who was a number one seed in 1983. Going back to the press conference at Nassau Coliseum in uh, in the Meadowlands in New Jersey, 
the um, the security guard stopped him going to the press conference because they didn't realize he was the coach of a major basketball program. I mean, they very much treated these guys like they were small potatoes from all of these programs, even though they were accomplishing a great deal. I mean, in the early 80s, BC went to the Sweet 16 four out of five years. They made it to the Elite Eight one time. Uh, BU had a, had, a, had a tournament run as well in 1983. Despite being very low-profile schools, they really did very well very quickly with these new head coaches. Interesting. And and I I I recall you saying and you plugged it, I think, twice now, or worked it in twice now, kind of the birth of March Madness. With that, you're saying or, or positing in the book that um they were part of like the growth of interest, or were they actively involved in expanding the tournament to 64 teams? Like where, where's the line there? Well, I think I think they're more part of the generation of coaches that end up becoming the celebrity coaches that are part of the expansion ah, of, of, of March okay. Madison to something big. I mean, it was gotcha. going to expand no matter what. I mean, I think really the growth of the Big East is what causes that putting putting teams in all these big money arenas, getting a contract with ESPN and having these teams on television all the time is really what builds this regular season following that makes uh, March Madness eventually possible and bc is clearly the most underrated of those early big east uh big east teams they they were the league champion two of the first five years of the conference and they they were in the sweet 16 four of those five seasons so they they had they held their own with the georgetowns and syracuses and villanovas uh in this this heavyweight conference and i just read uh another book about catholic college basketball that came out recently um oh my goodness it's on my john gashaway miracles on the yes. hardwood one of my blurbs mm-hmm. I was going to say, I, uh, I I just read that, and the BC thing I feel like would have been in there, but it's not even ringing a bell. So that's that's good to know because I, I, as ACC fans, I feel like, I mean, we're one to talk maybe, but like BC isn't really seen as the daunting team on the schedule. Not there, a, that's, that's the, that's no. the obvious win on the schedule when you look at it in, recent, in the last 15 years or so, ever since they got rid of Al Skinner, certainly. I mean, BC has been very – very weak in basketball for a very long time. I mean, really, I think leaving the Big East in the first place was a bad idea for them. I think the ACC, in terms of football, was just really beyond where they've been capable of long term. I mean, they had they had some good years with Matt Ryan and stuff, but uh, I we think are it grateful may have been for a... that. We are very grateful for that. Extremely no, grateful. Not. They beat us. No, 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 no. Very He's grateful. Knocked it off. He beat Hold us on. Like in a row. No, 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 no. Look, 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 look. Matt Ryan uh-uh. is the only. Matt Ryan is the only athlete that transcends the ACC rivalry border for me. I will give him that much grace. Hall Clayton, of Famer I got a random. I got a random tidbit for you. Mm-hmm. Did you know that prior to the 2022-2023 season, Boston College, despite fielding like 30 plus. ACC teams had only won one conference championship total across all of those sports. Really? Well, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's been a very difficult, been a very difficult move for them. I, I, you know, I think, I think it's too bad what happened to the Big East more broadly, but, and I think they're in many ways got it going. I think Syracuse, BC, they belong in kind of their own league with these Northeastern schools that, I mean, BC has nothing to do with NC State, has nothing to do with half of these schools, the ACC culturally. Oh, yeah. I mean, Georgia Tech, I think, actually makes some more sense in some ways. It's a longstanding, highly competitive university kind of thing. In some ways, I can see a relationship between them, but kind of secondary state universities in the in the mid-Atlantic region, what are, they have nothing to do with Virginia Tech or any of those right. people. It's, it's well, a very yeah, odd they, fit. They, they shouldn't be playing Miami. Clemson, on the Clemson like, noted secondary sense. state school. 
That is always very interesting when Clemson comes and plays at BC, seeing the clash of Southern football culture and Boston neighborhood culture. Like Clemson fans are always confused that you can't just use the bathroom everywhere. It's like the big, there's always 25,000 guys in orange who come up to Boston and they expect a pizzeria with two chairs. Like, can we come in and use the bathroom? Like they just don't understand that like, cities and clemson like what 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 a city is like these clemson fans generally speaking oh that's gonna be a hoot with some listeners for sure I, we're sure. gonna keep that one in. They'll, they'll love it i mean that i don't know uh so, sometimes anyways. sometimes you need to rile people up for the listens that's what all uh all publicity and i have great publicity. admiration for clemson's diehard support because until the last 15 years Clemson did not deserve the fan base they had. I mean, they've been great in recent oh. times, but there were 20 years where Clemson was seven and five all the time. They had a football yeah. fan base like they were winning the national title every year. Iowa was the same way in the Midwest. Like they're never that, that great, but Iowa has this incredibly rabid fan base. Uh, not to go too far afield, but uh, to me, hey. Iowa is sort of the Clemson of the Big Ten. But yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that's just got to be the entire like episode. That's like, the episode title. Show actually, Iowa is the Clemson of the Big Ten. I will. I will make that happen. There's nothing. We're not going to get better than that. Talk, tonight, talking think. Boston basketball, you know. Um, that's, yeah. Uh, no, that's going to be I, the subhead. Talking basketball is going to be the subhead. I, I, All right. Please I, get I'm the gonna, train back back on the road. I'm going to tie it back. Um, just an oddball before I move on to one of my one of my other questions on the list. Um, I got to ask before the time of these coaches. Uh, these programs were also seen as smaller or not as influential, correct? Like do these coaches represent like an apex not or a sustained growth? Like where, where are we looking at like before and after their tenures in Boston? Oh, it, it depends on the school at B- BU had been to the NCAA tournament exactly one time before Patino got there out of nowhere. Okay. They got to the elite eight in 1959 had never been to the tournament before that um, had never won a postseason game of any kind until 1980 with Patino. So they were, they were nowheresville as a basketball program. Northeastern was an excellent division two program, what they used to call the college division in the 1960s. The, the, the division two championship was always in Evansville, Indiana. They were there all the time and they were excellent at that level. During the early 1970s, they transitioned to division one and it really takes them a number of years to, uh, to get a hold of that. BC had so, some golden years early on because, like, Bob Cousy had been their coach. Chuck Daly, who, who coaches the Pistons. Like, BC had some golden years in the 60s, but really fell off for much of the 1970s. Gotcha. And honestly, it's, it's interesting you bring up Evansville because the first school I thought of, Missouri Valley boy at heart, was Evansville when you started talking about Northeastern being a big a big D2 program. So uh, good, good to know there. Kind of moving on and, and tying it not only to uh, Evansville, but also Iowa and Clemson. Um, are, what's the the appeal of the book you'd say to, you know, Southerners like Jack or like a, a Midwesterner turned Southerner like myself, college, general sports fans? Like what, what's what's the what's the overarching thing that you tell somebody to, to reel them in? I would say it's an origin story for modern college basketball. If you want to know how the game evolved in the late 20th and early 21st century, in many respects, it's a product of what these coaches did. And their their first crack at becoming head coaches was in Boston during the early 1980s. So it's it's the beginning point of everything you've come to know and, and love about modern college basketball. Maybe loathe, but I think for the most part, love. I mean, they've all been incredibly successful and um, and built programs out of really nothing in 
with nobody watching. I mean, they were play- these guys were having teams. BC was a little different. BC had 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 a niche of four or five thousand fans. They were literally BU games with two hundred people in the stands. There was one time BU was playing a conference tournament game. They had like three hundred people at it. Downstairs, BU was holding a celebration because BU's basketball arena is like was like a high school gym basically in yeah. a three three story building. The bottom floor was a hockey rink. Three members of the Miracle on Ice team were were BU guys, Mike Ruzioni and Jim Craig being the two most prominent guys on the team. BU was holding a celebration to commemorate them. The celebration downstairs was drowning out the um, conference playoff basketball game that was happening upstairs at the time. After these guys had come and won a game to get to the, to the conference finals, they come downstairs and there's 5,000 people hooting and hollering for the great American Olympic heroes. So, like, <laughs> what, what the... The seeming insignificance of what was happening at the time for these guys cannot be understated. They were a very small story in a lot of ways on campuses that were much more focused on almost everything else going on. Gotcha. That's cool. Um, Akshay, Jack, do you have anything else? Book, Boston, Loserville related? I mean, I don't like Boston. That's my sports hate. It's just all directed right at them. Uh, is it because of the Patriots? Because nobody in Boston until 25 years ago thought the Patriots were from Boston. They were from this piddly ass little town, Foxborough. I, you I know. understand. I, I understand that. To... But then I also understand they definitely you, you you take it over when they're winning though. Like you you latch on. I mean, it was the all it was it was that, but it was the they were winning all the sports thing when the Sox and Bruins and Patriots were all all simultaneously to be clear. great. And we were to be clear, I will cop bad. to it. Wow, you're insulting our guest. Come on. They gave us their second baseball team. Come on. Be nice. It's a gift. You got well, technically, it was from. Milwaukee's first baseball It was a secondhand team. gift, yes. Yeah, yeah. it wasn't even for us in the first place. <laughs> hey, it was almost the athletics. People forget that. The Braves, truly the fruitcake yeah. of the MLB, you know. Isn't that the thing they that always gets regifted? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it's cool. I mean, you know, I mean, following Boston sports is always just a unique thing for me, just because like a lot of it started there at all levels too. Just that's just where the core of a lot of the main stories start, and you can't do the histories, you can't think through where a lot of stuff comes from without touching Boston in a big way. Um, so hearing more about this, you realize Michael having... Jackson almost put the Patriots out of business. Michael what? Jackson, the singer. Michael Jackson almost put the Patriots out of business. In the mid-1980s, the owner of the Patriots' son, it was Patrick Sullivan, decided he was going to invest all of the family's money in a Jackson family reunion tour. Mm. It lost $100 million because Michael Jackson didn't appear on most of it. Michael Jackson got burned filming a Pepsi commercial, so Michael Jackson wasn't there. Wanted to go see Tito and Jermaine, you could, but they were charging Michael Jackson prices. So all of the family's fortune was gone. They played oh, in the boy. worst stadium in the league, and the yeah. Patriots nearly had to move. But instead, the family sold the team because of Michael Jackson. I mean, the Patriots were so small potatoes; it's tough to That's imagine incredible. during that time period. Wow. They were, they were, they were. That. If the Red Sox, Bruins, and Celtics were here, the Patriots are all the way down here and treated like maybe a Double A baseball team. In oh, the that's city. the other part. Is it? But then Celtics... Robert Kraft bought them, and it all changed. Oh, they were like weeks away from moving to yes. St. Louis, yeah. if I remember correctly. Like it's also, it's they had the logos drawn up and everything. Oh wow, really? Like for the St. Mm-hmm. Louis Patriots? St. Louis Stallions. Stallions. Okay, gotcha. Okay. No, also the 2008 uh, Hawks Celtics series. I, mean, I know we were the eight seed with a losing record, but still, 
getting in KG's Jack, face. Is one of my Jack. favorite things. Hey, you had a losing record. You were lucky to be there. Come on. I know, and we still took him to seven, baby. Oh, Mr. Chicago, relax. I didn't say, I didn't say anything about Chicago. Point. I didn't say anything about Chicago. We could talk uh, about Inevitably, we find a way. Inevitably, Anyways, we find a way. Keeping it civil, because that's my goal here as the interviewer. Um, Clayton, I got to ask, what's next after book two? Have you started book three yet? Oh, I've been going back and forth with my agent for a while now about a topic. Um, and eventually we'll come up for it. I assume it'll be another like, little thing little engine that could to make something big uh or fails to make something big um we'll see i i'm I'm still i haven't started writing it yet i've been doing a lot of just freelancing stuff just to just to make a little cash for the most part in the last uh last year or two on the side but uh yeah i i, I plan to write a third book and hopefully in, until i die i keep writing them nice <laughs> hey that sounds awesome um I got to say, uh, if you ever have any need to come back and, you know, talk about a third book, you're always welcome on the podcast here. But in the meantime, uh, where can everyone find you? Where can everyone find the book? Uh, you know, links, publishers, sure. all that if, if you If you head on over to Twitter, I'm at Clayton Truter, C-L-A-Y-T-O-N-T-R-U-T-O-R. Uh, I'd love to be your friend on Facebook. Just look up Clayton Truder. In terms of buying Loserville, you can find it on Amazon, steeply discounted right now. Just type in Loserville. There's some, I guess, teen drama that came out like seven years ago called that. If you see an <laughs> angsty teenager on the cover, that is not me. I'm the one with a picture of an empty Atlanta stadium is my uh, pick, is my Loserville. Um, Boston Ball is available for pre-order now. Um, you can go to bit.ly slash Boston Ball to... Uh, Check out the book on the publisher's website. You can save 40% on the book using promo code 6AF23. Um, 6AF23, bit.ly slash Boston Ball, uh, 40% off. I think it ends up being like $19 at that point, which is, you know, like a dinner date to Applebee's, I guess. So I think it's uh, <laughs> well worth your time. And uh, if you if you buy a copy, DM me and I'll send you a signed book plate. Thanking you for, thanking for your time and the money. Dang. Well, uh, I'm sure all of them uh, that listen to this fine podcast will have to go check it out. I, I know I can't wait to uh, give it uh, give it a read. The first one was a page turner, and I know we're all excited for the second. One other thing we're excited for on this fine podcast is Section103.com. Section103 is Georgia Tech's finest uh, purveyor of soft and wearable uh, Georgia Tech apparel. I'm back in my section 103 this week after a home run derby related hiatus last week. Uh, the THWG shirt is truly one of my favorites. It fits great. Uh, it wears great. It's very soft. You really can't go wrong with any of it. Last week, Joey mentioned the juniors grill shirt and I mentioned the North Avenue trade school seal shirt. Uh, this week I am going to plug the tech zip hoodie, uh, because that is in my closet. It's probably the thing I wear the most, uh, outside of, uh, you know, my everyday work clothes and, and and that kind of thing. And you can find it and so much more great Georgia tech stuff at section 103.com. Keep an eye out there uh, into this coming season uh, for all the latest and greatest gold, white uh, official GT logos and, and all that from section 103.com and at section 103 on Twitter. Gents, you've had me do a lot of talking tonight. I don't usually steer the episodes, but uh, you know, I'm going to get in one more, uh, because even though there is not much news, uh, history trivia stops for no one. Uh, with Clayton on this week, he requested a Pepper Rogers-related question. 
so on the fly, I found one. I think it's pretty interesting. Um, so without further ado, I'll set it up. For those that don't know, Pepper Rogers was Georgia Tech's quarterback when he was a student and an athlete. And then he became, uh, after some winding times uh, around, uh, as an assistant at Air Force Florida and UCLA and head coach at Kansas and again at UCLA, uh, the head coach at Georgia Tech. He coached at Georgia Tech for six seasons. In the process, he managed a probably, almost certainly, unrepeatable feat uh almost uh, more often associated uh, consistency-wise with Chan Gailey. Does anyone know what this record-related feat was? Before anyone gives an answer, I want to make sure that we know one thing. Did you just Pepper Rogers explain it? what is probably a pretty – an audience that is pretty well-versed in Pepper Rogers? Yeah, I mean – I don't know. It's Every podcast, podcast is someone's first. It's, it's always someone's first. Oh, Are you gatekeeping my... Pepper Rogers? I'm not listeners. gatekeeping anything. I'm just saying you have to. You should expect more of our listenership. No, I'm no, advocating no, no. for the audience. We're we're an open tent, Akshay. We want to bring people in. Sidewalk fans are good. Uh, we don't want any celebrations drowning out our conference tournament basketball games. (laughs) That would require us having a hockey team, I guess, but I can dream. Um, Anyways, uh, you guys are welcome to ask any clarifying questions you want. I recommend you work together because you're probably not just going to randomly guess it unless you're really confident uh, in which case go ahead, but which record related and it's related to consistency feat over Pepper Rogers, six seasons. Did he accomplish? Oh, and this and is regular it, season records. I'm not counting these. I have, I have, I have a, related. Purdue. I, I have a thought on this. Clayton, I want to hear it. They were always kind of like six and five-ish. I think it's going to be like most consecutive six and five seasons. I don't think uh, that you're on the wrong path. Uh, it's not just six and five, though they did go six and five. Um, let me see in two of his seasons. It is related to consistency in that record, though. I'll give you guys like two more guesses because it's so close. It's almost like five lost seasons specifically. Nope. Nope. It is. uh, It is tied to his record. Akshay, do you want to give it one more guess? Otherwise, I'll throw it out there. You said it was Chen Gailey related. So it has to be something having to do with hovering right around 500. Um, yes. And I'm going to assume that it is like the longest streak of of um, like either 500 seasons or hovering right around 500 seasons pre Chan Gailey. You know what? I'm going to give you all the collective credit because Clayton, you got close. Akshay, you added, a, I think, an important little nuance because it's not six and five all in a row. Um, I do want to be clear about that. What it is, is Pepper Rogers managed the almost unrepeatable feat of having the exact same regular season record for three seasons in a row repeat. So he went six and five. And then the next year in 1975, he went seven and four. And then the next year he went four and six. And then in his fourth year, he went six and five. And then he went seven and four with a bowl loss to Purdue in the Peach Bowl. And then he went again, four and six and one. Uh, Sorry, 1976 was four and six and one in case I only said four and six. But um, yes, so Pepper Rogers posted the exact same uh, record pattern of three seasons again in a row. Oh, there's no way that's ever going to be repeated. That's 
the, the probability of that is extremely low. Yes. Maybe just get I feel like Kansas could, Kansas, could, Kansas could go 0-12, 1-11, 2-10, and, and then go back to 0-12. I feel like they would be capable Another Pepper Rogers former team. There you go. Yeah. Uh, but yes, I I made that up on the fly, which I think is or found that out on the fly, which not made it up because obviously it existed and it's been there that way for that 50 years. Good, but yeah. not bad. Um couple other Pepper Rogers facts for you. Um, for those who don't go diving into his stats all the time. It's worth noting he was 522 overall with that. 34, 31, and 2 record. Against current ACC teams, he went 10, 8, and 1 for a 553 win percentage, uh, including uh, multiple wins and no losses against UVA and Miami, uh, also going 1 and 0 against FSU. He was not very good against Duke um, or Pitt or Clemson. He went 1, 2, and 1. He went 9, 13, and 1 against uh, current SEC teams, including 3 and 3 against Auburn, 2 and 4 against the school in Athens, and 2 and 3 against South Carolina. Um, yeah. You've also forgotten uh, one important record for him. He's also 0 and 1 versus the state of Georgia. Oh. In, <laughs> in lawsuits. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I'm actually I, I I had to fire that off before I confirmed who the actual uh, who actually ran the lawsuit. So or from I think the, that um, should be the name of the episode. Owen one versus the state of Georgia. Man, I uh, I thought I might get something out of the fact that he uh, that he beat Notre Dame, but then I realized he also lost to Notre Dame five times, and I was like, that's not going to make for a He lost back. the Rudy game. The reason yes, there's a Rudy movie is because it's oh, he's Tech. The guy. Yeah. He's the coach for that yeah. game. Okay, okay. Speaking speaking of Notre Dame and Georgia Tech, Clay, did you know that uh, – uh, uh, what's his name? Frank um, Leahy? Leahy? Frank Leahy. Um, yeah. yeah. You know he almost died on the sidelines in a Tech-Notre uh, Dame game? Really? How? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he was not doing so good, I guess. He kind of kind of old, and uh, they brought in a priest to read him his last rites and everything. So, but he didn't die. So, wild that would Georgia be a really dramatic halftime. Yes, I, but that's that why that's why I brought it up. For the Gipper. Yeah, I was going to say you, you got a lot of legendary Notre Dame drama, but that might take the cake, and almost no one knows yeah. about it. So there you go. I uh, I do have to issue a small correction. It was Pepper Rogers' lawsuit was not against the state of Georgia. It was versus uh, specifically the Georgia Tech Athletic Association because it is a private entity and not a not a school, which would have been public and referred to the university system of Georgia. Thank you. one versus the state of Georgia should be a number one country song. That does sound like a yeah, but like the a, problem is uh, the problem is where it would be recorded, uh, mixed, and uh, distributed from, which is something that we can't abide by. I uh, I, I gotta say one more thing, uh, just to bring it home on the the, the frankly thing. Uh, Notre Dame won that game. They were the one number one team in the country. So even though their coach almost died in the middle of it, uh, they 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 did win that football game. So, and frankly, he coached at Boston College. And the BC Notre Dame trophy is called the Frank Leahy Trophy. Wow, I didn't know that. And BC BC takes that rivalry incredibly seriously, and Notre Dame treats it as being roughly like Purdue or something. It's fairly low on their list <laughs> of uh, major games. That makes sense. <laughs> that uh, that Frank Leahy game was the uh, first loss Georgia Tech had had 
in quite some time. Actually, uh, they were 4-1 going into that game in 1953, and you might know 1952 as the year uh, in which they went undefeated and untied uh, and to win a national title. So Pepper Rogers played in that game because Pepper Rogers was there in the early 50s. Okay. Yeah. Um, 19, He's Forrest 19, Gump, isn't he? Yep. 1951, they also did not lose a game. They were untied, so that was their first loss. Uh, since November 18th, 1950. So um, there you go. A lot of history today, but it's the middle of summer. And so I'm going to indulge myself. Uh, um, I think that's all I've got. Gents, have I forgotten anything? No. Akshay is shaking his head no There was only three pieces of news Uh, this week, and they were just, hey, these guys showed up. So (laughs) Yeah. We might we might have another it's a slow period. Uh, T- TBD. Uh, we're working on that, and by that I mean I'm working on that. I will I will. Uh, you know, if there's an interview next week, everyone will be like, "Oh, Jake did it," and if he didn't, it's not my fault. Um, blame someone else. Um, we could have all Clemson episode. I could come on and talk Clemson for an hour. <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh man, I uh, I don't know how that would go, but you know, we could always dream. Uh, <laughs> um, with that being said. Uh, I will bring us out. Clayton, before we go, uh, tell us one more time where we can find you and uh, your your fine books. And uh, yeah, what you're up to. Okay. Thank you guys all for a fun evening. Um, I'm Clayton Truder. My uh, Twitter handle is at C-L-A-Y-T-O-N-T-R-U-T-O-R, Clayton, at Clayton Truder on Facebook, uh, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, if you want to find Loserville, it's available for a nice price on Amazon right now. Uh, which is my Atlanta book. My new book, Boston Ball, is available for pre-order. You go to bit.ly slash Boston and you use the promo code 6AF23, you can get 40% off the cover price and pay well under $20 for it. Uh, And I'll be happy to send you a signed book plate thanking you as well. Hey, I I can't wait for my signed book plate, Clayton. Um, (laughs) Anyways, uh, you can find us at fromtherumbleseat.com. As always, you can email us from the rumble seat at gmail.com. We don't have a lot of open dates left, but uh, it's the summer. We want to make sure that we, when we have this time, are talking about what you all want to hear, whether it's more interviews or specific topics or history. Uh, we've got some uh, few ideas in the works, but uh, pretty soon we will be in football preview time and volleyball preview time as this is a volleyball podcast primarily. Uh, in the meantime, you can find us on Twitter at FTRS blog. Uh, I'm at Jake Grant 98. Jack is at Jack Nicholas. You can find Section 103 at Section 103 as well. Remember, Section103.com. Free shipping on orders over 70 bucks. And then on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, you can find us at From the Rumble Seat. You can find us uh, over the airwaves, wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Good night. Good luck. Thanks again, Clayton, and go Jackets. Uh-huh.